Elfinworks Productions presents Ribbons and Bows, American Women in Violin History. Last time on Ribbons and Bows, we moved from the mists of time through the Romantic era. We met Florence Hardiman, soloist for John Philip Sousa, the most well-known act of the day. We met Vera Barstow, who captivated crowds with her 1745 Guadagnini violin. Florence Austin, the fiery American rock star of a virtuoso of a century ago, who captivated the critics and then disappeared from the stage, turning her attention to teaching. And Maude Powell, the fiery virtuoso who finally was recognized in 2014, decades after she had passed away, for her artistry, the first woman instrumentalist ever to be recognized with a Lifetime Achievement Grammy. And now, World War I and the Roaring Twenties, 1920s that is. This is the time the great Fritz Kreisler was sent to war. We see how war affected the careers of so many of our young heroines and how an era of new freedoms affected life for them and for all of us. So now, let's revel in the Roaring Twenties as we meet six starlets of the musical stage. Irma Seidel, Kathleen Parlow, Estelle Gray Levine, Barbara Lull, Ilsa Nemac, and Ruth Ray. World War I, 1914 to 1918, was known as the Great War because it was to be the war to end all wars. The first year at Christmas time, sweet music played a part in bringing momentary peace. An armistice between soldiers on various fronts. It was December 24, 1914. German soldiers, who were winning, began singing Silent Night. Others across enemy lines joined in, and peace broke out, lasting all through Christmas Day. Soldiers smoked cigars together and played soccer. They buried their dead. They exchanged chocolates, buttons, and other souvenirs. And they also exchanged addresses thinking they might write to each other after the war ended. We're told of one certain young soldier who refused to participate in that transcendent moment, a young man by the name of Adolf Hitler, who'd have none of it. Not everyone wants peace, but many did. Perhaps 100,000 soldiers took part in this unexpected grassroots peace moment, and many of them wrote home to say it was the best Christmas they'd ever experienced. When the soldiers were finally ordered back into battle, they aimed high so as not to kill each other that day. The commanders, thinking all this might hinder the war effort, tried for a press embargo, but there were too many joyful letters home to keep it secret for long. Who was the greatest, best-known, most well-loved violinist at that time? Without a doubt, it must be Fritz Kreisler. Kreisler had been born in Austria, had grown up to become a wildly well-loved violinist, a medical doctor, and a composer, with an instantly recognizable sound, sweet tone, and distinctively expressive phrasing, Chrysler was widely regarded as one of the greatest violinists of all time. Among his legacy are many musical hoaxes, works he penned himself and attributed to others with a twinkle in his eye. An allegretto not by Baccarini, various works not by Martini, a minuet not by Pugnani, and so on. And there is a certain glissando slide from one note to another that now carries his name 
the Chrysler slide. The fact that Fritz Chrysler was a fabulous violinist didn't exempt him from serving in the war. The fact he was a medical doctor didn't exempt him either. He was ordered to serve on the side of the Austrians against the Russians, and serve he did. Chrysler's wife, we know, volunteered as a Red Cross nurse. Chrysler wrote of his experience in a little book, Four Weeks in the Trenches. The book, quite small but also poetic, has a certain musical eye and lyric quality about it. For example, the care he takes to relate a story like that of the spontaneous Christmas Eve ceasefire. His foxhole had been 500 yards from the enemy trenches. After three days, they knew each other's features. One Russian with good humor and jollity and bravado made the first move with a gift of tobacco, prompting an unofficial 20-minute truce that did more for the joie de vivre among the soldiers than a train load of provision. And with this new camaraderie, truces would be called for removing the wounded. Ribbons and Bows, American Women in Violin History, a presentation of Elfenworks Productions beyond film and music, will return after this brief message. Musicians, singers, teachers, lift your voice for peace, for our time. Find out how at www.elfenworks.org peace. Now we return to Ribbons and Bows, American Women in Violin History. At one point, Chrysler was summoned to the 13th Company, half a mile away, to translate. There, he learned of two Russians on the point of starvation who had carried a white flag to ask for some food from the enemy side in trade for some tobacco from their own. The two were given something of a feast, including Chrysler's own stash of chocolate, then sent back with a heavy sack of gifts, bread, biscuits, bacon, cheese, each person contributing. Chrysler remarked, Many a man must have parted with his last piece of bread in order not to be outdone by the others in generosity. For our own provisions were running very low. It's true, the bread and biscuits were mildewed, the cheese stale, the bacon as hard as stone, but the boys gave the best they could, the very poverty and humbleness of their gifts attesting to their own desperate plight and bearing proud witness to the extent of their sacrifice. With tears in their eyes and reiterated protestations of thanks, our guests staggered back through the night to their lines, undoubtedly carrying with them tender memories of Austrian generosity and hospitality. Chrysler also summed up an important truth about peace. It's possible to fight fiercely and passionately against masses, but, he said, as soon as that mass crystallizes itself into human individuals whose features one can actually recognize. Hatred almost ceases. Although fighting continues, he mentions, it takes more the form of sport, each side being eager to get the best of the other. One still shoots at his opponent, but almost regrets when he sees him drop. While a soldier, Chrysler also found that his musical ear was useful. Shells sound different going up than when coming down. He said it sounds like a dull whine accompanied by a falling cadence, which changes to a rising shrill as soon as the acme has been reached and the curve points downward again. By being able to hear where the acme was and knowing the acme was exactly halfway between both sides, he could help pinpoint the source of the opponent's artillery. So he was sent on reconnoitering tour that did just that. 
Chrysler served until he was injured and received an honorable discharge. His hearing was never quite the same after the war, and with the outbreak of another great war, World War II, he and his wife would move to the United States and become naturalized citizens, joining America's proud violin history and teaching many women protégés. Ribbons and Bows, American Women in Violin History, a presentation of Elfenworks Productions Beyond Film and Music, will return after this brief message. Hi, I'm Seema Shams, Chief Development Officer at the Carter Center, where we're waging peace, fighting disease, building hope. Did you know that you can be a part of advancing the lives of women and their families worldwide? Find out more at www.cartercenter.org. That's www.cartercenter.org. Now we return to Ribbons and Bows, American Women in Violin History. The Great War also saw women lend their talents to the war effort in many ways. Women even brought their violins to comfort the soldiers. Violinists such as Irma Seidel, who played at forts until after lights out for the barracks. Born in 1869 in Boston, Seidel's father was in the Boston Symphony, and he started her on the violin at the age of three. She finished her studies in Europe and then toured Europe and America. Seidel had been planning on doing another European tour until World War I changed her plans. Seidel and her accompanist were both charming girls who played with rare sense of style, and the audiences were always full of enthusiasm every time they performed. The St. Louis Globe Democrat, Miss Seidel captured the hearts of her audience and all the musical honors with the first upward sweep of her bow. The Boston Post. A rare and commanding sense of style, with authority and fire, and with all the sureness and freedom of a matured virtuoso. The Deutsche Musikzeitung. The youthful violinist gave an astounding exhibition of finely developed technique, beautiful soulful tone quality, sympathetic sincerity, and real depth of interpretive ability. During wartime, Seidel also played at a naval hospital for the soldiers who were resting and for the wounded who were recovering. Her music transported them away from their current troubles or physical pain into memories or hopes, filling them with joy and helping them recover and grow well or maintain courage and stay the course. Meet Kathleen Parlow, the Lady of the Golden Bow, one of the famous women violinists of the First World War era and one of the best players of her time. Born in 1890 in Fort Calgary, Alberta, Canada, Miss Parlow moved to San Francisco, California, and began playing the violin at age of four. Quickly hailed as a virtuoso, she was the first American woman to attend St. Petersburg Conservatory, where she studied under the great pedagogue Leopold Auer. The only female in her class of 45 students, a fact that perhaps shouldn't surprise us, given the times in which she lived, there was seemingly nothing in the standard repertoire she could not or did not play, and critics loved her every aspect. The San Francisco Chronicle. Her technique is ever admirable in its surety, fluidity, and consummate ease. The Vancouver Daily Province. Miss Parlow is justly entitled to be classed among the greatest virtuosi of the day, irrespective of sex or nationality. The New York American. 
She promised wonders when we heard her first a year ago, and she has kept her promise. Miss Parlow now stands in the foremost rank, side by side with such violinists of high fame as Chrysler and Zimbalist. Her many concert venues included Aeolian Hall, Carnegie Hall, and Mendelssohn Hall. She was a great influence beyond her concertizing for her teaching as well. As World War I drew to a close in 1918, the world breathed a sigh of relief. The United States slipped into a time of prosperity and growth. Germany, though, was in ruins, forced to give up the military and make harsh reparations, payments that, along with soaring inflation, bankrupted the country, sowing seeds of discontent that helped pave the way, only 21 years later, for World War II. But for now, and ever so slowly, the rest of Europe was focusing on recovering and rebuilding from the ravages of war, picking up speed, and then joining in with the United States in celebration as we headed full gallop into the 20s. In the teens and into the roaring 20s, virtuoso Estelle Gray-Levine was known for her strong bowing and mastery of the violin. She was born in Alameda, California, and began playing violin at the age of six. In 1906, during the San Francisco earthquake, Estelle's violin was being repaired in the city. The story goes like this. When the news came that the fire was spreading, the little violinist dashed downtown, even though the order was to shoot anyone entering the building. She flew past the soldiers, broke into the shop, and rescued the historic fiddle. Her violin was the 1715 Old Cremona. At 11, she was offered a cap and gown by the University of the Pacific, and shortly afterwards turned down a scholarship at the University of California in order to study in New York. She began giving concerts at the age of 15, and her mother was her tour manager and promoter. Gray Levine lived in a time when women were expected to marry and settle down. Of course, this can be difficult for a woman who has devoted her life to becoming a professional concertizing performer. Luckily for Estelle, she found and fell in love with a pianist, Moritz Levin. The couple had a son and toured together as a popular duo. Then, somewhat scandalous for the times, the pair divorced. In 1922, as was the custom, Estelle got full custody of their two-and-a-half-year-old son, Laddie. Now a single working mom, Estelle stayed busy, and her number of performances increased. She was awarded a life membership in the Cleveland Musical Association, an honor few women received. When Laddie was six years old, he began touring with his mom, accompanying her on the piano. At the end of one six-week tour, Estelle felt she needed to rest before the journey home to California. She entered a hospital in Boston and then died unexpectedly two days later. What a sad loss for all her fans, but most especially her young son. In a rare review, The Times of October 1926, a critic wrote, Not alone by her mastery of the violin, not alone by her personality, not alone by her dramatic ability, not alone by her possession of a far-reaching, sweetly-toned speaking voice, but all combined makes her the world's foremost woman violinist. 
This episode features excerpts from works in the public domain and copyrighted recordings of Maud Powell that were used with permission from the copyright holder. For details including full legal notice, visit elfinworksproductions.com. This concludes part one of a special extended presentation of Ribbons and Bows, American Women in Violin History. Tune in next time for part two. Learn about all our products, including this one, available as an audiobook release, and find more information and detailed histories online now at www.elfinworksproductions.com. We thank you for your patronage and partnership as we strive to tell the stories that matter. Copyright 2018, Elfinworks Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.